Good morning, everyone. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14 is where we'll be focusing and really just spending all of our time uh, this morning. Matthew chapter 14. It is good to see you. I have to say, for my part, uh, this has just been an outstanding morning. I appreciate all the, uh, the work that's been done uh, and the thoughts that have been shared to really focus on what Jesus has done for us and that we can come and worship him and think about those things and think about the forgiveness and the hope that we have because of him. So it has been a blessing to be here uh, this morning. We want to welcome those who are visiting with us, those who are here in person. We would love to get to know you better. We'd love for you to stick around for a minute so we can talk with you. And if there is a need that has brought you here this morning, uh, something that we can help with, uh, please let us know about that. And uh, we thank you for being here and for sharing in those things with us. Those who are joining us online, we are thankful that you're here. And where any questions that you have, feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to talk with you more about the things that we're going to talk about this morning. I want to begin by reading in Matthew 14 and verse 1. The text says, Matthew 14, 1, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. This is in the time when Jesus has started to become famous. And so in verse 1, it says that Herod the Tetrarch heard about his fame. And he begins to think that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. This section of scripture is focused on how Jesus' fame became a problem. It creates issues with the people in his hometown of Nazareth where he goes back and they say, huh, this is not the kid that we remember. It also creates the attention of Herod, which is not a good thing, and has him confused with John. A little later, it will lead to the crowds that he has to try to escape from. Matthew 14 tells the story of one long day in the life of Jesus. And what I want to do this morning is just look through this text and study through it and think about Jesus' long day. We know what it's like to have a long day. And we know what it's like to deal with difficult people and to get bad news and to experience unfairness. We know what it's like to get to the end of the day and just be worn out. And that's where Jesus gets during this day. So what I want to focus on is what we're going to call how Jesus got through the day. And the reason I want to do that is pretty simple. I want us to learn how to get through our days like Jesus. Do you ever have days that you say, all I did today was survive? I just got through the day? And sometimes you look back and you say, I don't even know how I got through the day. I want us to learn from Jesus. Because Jesus is going to show us the most important strategy to getting through the day, even when things are hard. So what I want to do is just begin by studying the text, and then we'll draw our lessons that we need at the end. First of all, Jesus' long day involves bad news. So beginning here in verse 1, Matthew 14, 1, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So Herod assumes that Jesus must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. John was not a miracle worker. John didn't do miracles, but Jesus does. And so Herod thinks, well, it must be that John has been raised from the dead and now has different powers than he had before. That idea of miraculous powers is exactly what the people of Nazareth were surprised to see in Jesus. Back in chapter 13, and it's verse 54. Where did this man get these mighty works? Same words, miraculous powers. But the reason Herod jumps to this conclusion, which by the way, it's not a normal conclusion when you hear about somebody to say, huh, that must be the guy I killed. He must have come back from the dead and now he has evil powers, the re or good powers, but to Herod, not good. 
The reason why Herod assumes it's John the Baptist is because he has a guilty conscience. John is dead, and it's Herod's fault. And Herod, when he hears about something like this, thinks, this must be what I have done coming back to haunt me. Verse 3, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So Matthew begins to tell the story of John's death. It started with John critiquing the king because the king Herod had taken his brother Philip's wife. So there is immorality there. He says, it's not lawful for you to have her. This is a wrong thing. And John speaks up about it. I know this is strange in our time. We live in a nation where everyone has the right and the freedom to say what they want to say about the government and government officials. And yet in this time, you say the wrong thing about the wrong person or in the hearing of the wrong person, and you end up in jail. John was a very prominent and influential prophet. And so when John comes out against Herod's marriage, Herod takes notice he is arrested. But we also get a little glimpse here of Herod's inner life. In verse 5, it says, Though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. He wants him dead. And we learn that Herodias is also involved in that. Herodias held a grudge against him. But he is afraid because the people love him so much. And so that is sort of a stalemate where John's in prison. They're not going to let him go, but they're also not going to kill him. And so John's just in limbo waiting. But then the tide turns. Verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that she, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. So Herodias' daughter, or Herod's stepdaughter, comes and dances before his guests at this massive party. I, this is just my spin and my thinking. So I I cannot prove this, but it seems to me likely that in a big party like this, there is probably alcohol involved, and I believe that probably if we're talking about dancing, it's something to do with some kind of lewd or sexual type dance. Because the, the sort of drunken boast oath that Herod gives is just foolish. Give me, you ask, I'll give you whatever you want, up to half my kingdom. But whatever the reason, Herod now has an oath on the table and Herodias' daughter goes quickly to her mother and says, well, what should I ask for? I mean, after all, it's not every day that the king says, ask me whatever you want. And so Herodias has a ready answer. She sees the opportunity to finally get rid of John for good in a particularly brutal and awful way, behead him and bring his head on a platter. So you have a banquet, you have a party, And just like they're bringing in all these foods on dishes, she says, bring me in someone's head. So now Herod is in a difficult position. Verse 9, the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. So Herod regrets it, but he feels bound to keep his foolish oath, and he kills John. It is a sad and awful end for a great man. Verse 12 then says, And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So what fits into our story is that Herod hears about Jesus and assumes that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. But our story continues with Jesus being told the news 
that John has been killed. So let's just take a time out here and process what we've studied. This is an awful and tragic story. It reminds us that sometimes godly people suffer for no reason other than evil people are allowed to get their way. An insecure and immoral ruler kills a godly man. Everyone knows John is a great prophet. And so it does raise a question, doesn't it? Why would God let a great prophet and a good man suffer and die? God does not intervene. Keep that thought in mind because we'll come back to it later. John and Jesus are also very close. They are related, although the specificity of the relation is not really detailed in, in Scripture. Their ministries have overlapped. In fact, Jesus and John are so similar in what they are preaching that Herod can't tell them apart. In fact, very often, it is John who says, here is the beginning, and Jesus just takes the torch and runs. Many of John's disciples become Jesus' disciples. There's there's not a difficult transition there because they are so similar. So the first thing about this long day for Jesus is that he receives terrible news that would have affected him personally. Now let's keep reading. What happens next is what we're going to talk about is hungry crowds. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, when he got the bad news, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. So as soon as he gets the news, he goes away. He gets into a boat and goes all by himself to a desolate place. We're on the Sea of Galilee. I put a picture up here of the Sea of Galilee. There are different cities around the city, but there are also places that are deserted and isolated, even today, where there are no people. And you could go and you can hear some mountains or something. You can kind of be alone. Jesus goes to do that, but instead of being alone... When he gets there, he finds that there are people who are already there. The other part about the Sea of Galilee is it's not big. So if people see somebody on a boat, they can say, hey, let's go over there where he's going. Looks like he's going over here. Let's go over there. And so they walk and they meet him so that when he gets there, there are already people there. Verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So seeing them, the text says that Jesus had compassion. That's a word that means to be deeply moved in the stomach. It means that Jesus felt something for the people. He was stirred up. He was emotional about it. Some of them have come to see him do miracles. Some of them have brought their sick relatives. Some of them may have even limped all the way there or carried someone there because they know Jesus can heal them. Some of them have come to hear a new teaching, a parable. Chapter 13 had a whole bunch of parables in it. Or some new word about the kingdom. What is Jesus going to say? What's he going to do? They're here for him and Jesus feels something. And the text says in verse 14, he healed their sick. Do you ever wonder how the Bible can say so much in just a few words? Think about that. He healed their sick. I wonder, did they have a line? Or was it just a free for all? I mean, after all, we're kind of, we're not really in an orderly place here. Is it just whoever can get close enough to Jesus at first and kind of touch his garment or something like that? He healed their sick, person after person. I wonder if Jesus asked them about their story. I mean, how many stories would it be? Just think about if the people in this room were healed of the ailments we have. How many stories do we have? How many scars do we already have? How many diseases do we have? And for Jesus to do this for this great multitude... All day long, person after person, story after story, word after word, he healed their sick because he had compassion. And it goes on all day. Verse 15. Now, when it was evening, all day, when it was evening, 
The disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So now we're in a tough spot because we're far away from civilization, and it's getting late, and if people don't have some direction, we don't end this now, we're all going to be out here in the middle of the night with no food. And so, again, we're talking some people who may have been sick or weak. They need food. It's not fair. It's not safe. Maybe they're even a little concerned about Jesus because the disciples are here saying, Jesus, it's about time for this to all end. Send everybody home and then they can get some food. But Jesus balks at that. Verse 16. But Jesus said, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. I love that you give them something to eat. It's emphatic in the Greek. You give them something to eat. This is your problem, not mine. I'm healing people. You guys take care of it. I think it's an interesting thing because Jesus wants to meet the people's needs and he wants them to do that without having to send them away, at least not yet. But he also has something else in mind. John's account says that Jesus said this to test them, specifically Philip. He wants the disciples to sit with this problem for a minute because it's one thing to say, oh yeah, Jesus fed 5,000 people. It's another thing to say, what are you going to do to feed 5,000 people if you've got five loaves and two fish? You're going to go around and ask people, hey, does anybody have food for maybe 1,000? Do you bring food for 1,000? No, well, what are we going to do? There's no food around here. I mean, maybe we could try to fish a little bit, but that would take a long time. Probably wouldn't catch anything. 5,000 people to sit with that problem and feel the immensity of it. And then he says, all right, well, bring me what you've got. Verse 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So he thanks God for the food. That's specifically said in verse 19. He said a blessing. He breaks the loaves and gives some to the disciples. And it looks like, as the text reads, he just keeps giving and giving and giving. And it's an interesting thing because the, the crowds might not know where this food is coming from. They might think Jesus has a special stash somewhere, but the disciples know because they're the ones involved in giving it out. They're the ones who know we just keep coming back to him and he just keeps having more food and we know there wasn't that much when we started. So the disciples each take up a basket full of leftover food. Leftover food, which means there's more food after the meal than before it. Has that ever happened to you? More food after the meal than before it? The answer is no, by the way. Never is there more food after than before. So after this bad news, Jesus is now confronted by tremendous need. It is a tidal wave of need. Sick, hungry, ignorant people. Disciples who are in need of instruction and testing. And Jesus cares and heals and teaches and meets needs all day long. The whole day. And when he has an opportunity to end things, you know, let's just send them away so they can go get some food. Jesus says, no, no, we're not sending anybody away. In fact, I'll take care of the food thing so that we can be here longer to do more teaching and more healing. So Jesus' long day continues with hungry crowds. The third thing I want to see, this next section, is water walking. In verse 22, verse 22, it says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat 
and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. So after dinner, he sends the disciples away. You guys leave. He wants them to go to the other side of the sea. And he says, I'll follow later, although it's not clear exactly what he's going to do. Then he himself dismisses the crowds, which they've been waiting for. Verse 23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So Jesus is alone and he goes up on the mountain to pray. I've shown you some pictures of mountains here. I don't know if it's one of these or some other mountain, but there are areas there where one could do that. But he prays even into the night. And when he finishes, the boat is out there on the Sea of Galilee. The boat's a long way away from land, but it's too far out to come back and pick him up. He's also not going to wait for a boat. He just decides, you know, I'm just going to walk across. Uh, The Sea of Galilee is not very wide, about eight miles wide. So Jesus decides, depending on where you're going from one side to the other, it could be shorter or longer. But he decides, you know what, I'll I'll just walk across. And so he begins to walk on the water instead of bothering with a boat bothering with the wind like the disciples are doing. It just seems easier to walk. Now, that's not really an option we have, but it's an option Jesus had. Verse 25, in the fourth night of the watch, the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But Jesus spoke to them, immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So, Remember the disciples now, we've kind of been looking at Jesus praying on the mountain, but the disciples are stuck in the middle of the lake because the wind is against them. So they're struggling with that, trying to get across. It's now 3 a.m., the third watch of the night. Still, they're fighting the wind and Jesus comes to them. So Mark says, in fact, he was going to just walk by them. Jesus is going faster walking than they're going sailing. So it tells you something about the wind and the position they were in. But of course, when they see somebody walking on the water, They're terrified. They think it's a ghost. Jesus speaks to them, and he tells them, calm down. You know who I am. It's me. And so they do. Now, verse 28, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Interesting to me, Peter asks Jesus Jesus to command him, verse 28, command me to come out to you. That phrasing is interesting because if Jesus commands it, then, of course, Jesus is going to supply the ability to do it that Peter does not have. So there's a principle there, by the way, that what God commands, God supplies. But Peter gets out of the boat, and he begins to walk on the water to come to Jesus. Now, take a minute with that. If you're Peter, you've seen some awesome stuff as you've walked with Jesus but this has got to be at the top of the list because you yourself are experiencing the power and awesomeness of what Jesus can do. So you you get out and it's still windy, but the wind is kind of ruffling your hair and the water is moving under your feet because there's lots of waves, but somehow it still holds up under your feet. And you look back at the other disciples in the boat and what are they doing? Their mouths are open, right? Because they see you on the water too. In fact, I wonder if they're not ready to hop out of the boat themselves. But something happens. In verse 30, it says, verse 30, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, 
Truly, you are the Son of God. When he sees the wind, the text says, which, of course, I think implies not, you don't really see the wind, but the idea is you see the massive waves that the wind is whipping up. He gets scared, begins to sink. He cries out for Jesus' help, and Jesus, of course, helps him, but then he asks the question. In verse 31, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? He wants Peter to step back from this. Think about what, what happened out there. You, you had a lot of feelings, but, but there was something inside you that led you to doubt. What happened there? Why did you doubt, oh, you of little faith? So Jesus continues to teach, and he continues to challenge his disciples. By the time they land... There are more healings to be done. We're in a new day now, verse 35 and 36. The day continues. Jesus continues to give and to serve and to heal and to teach. So the question I want to ask is, what what do we learn from a story like this? I know that it's tempting to just look at this as an unrelated set of events. Here's some stuff that Jesus did. But I want us to think about how Jesus got through a day like that. And as we do that, I want to remind you that Jesus lived a life like you and I do. He was a man. He had days. Sometimes those days were hard days and long days and exhausting days. But what was Jesus thinking? And how did Jesus get through all of this? I think there are some clues in our text. Look back with me in verse 12. In Matthew 14 and verse 12, it says, His disciples came, the John's disciples, and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus... Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Did you notice that as soon as Jesus gets bad news, he immediately wants to be alone? He tries to get away from everybody. He goes on a sailing trip by himself and leaves everybody behind to be in a desolate place. One version says he went to be alone. But he can't because the people are there. I want you to think about that as a response to bad news. Something tragic has happened and Jesus wants to be alone. I think strong implication is he needs to pray. He wants to be alone with his father. And I want to remind you that it's not just that Jesus is thinking, oh no, something terrible has happened to John. I want you to think about what Jesus is thinking. And he gives us a clue to that in this passage in Matthew 17 and verse 12. He says, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Elijah is John the Baptist. He says, you know, John did come. Look at how they treated John. And then he says, they're coming for me. I wonder if John, John's fate, doesn't remind Jesus keenly of what's coming for him. That the brutality and the ugliness of beheading a man for preaching the truth, that same spirit is going to end in his grisly crucifixion. The looming spectacle of the cross, they are coming for me. And when Jesus thinks of that and he hears that, he's got to go pray. I need to pray about this. I don't know if that means that Jesus is is scared and he's seeking courage. I don't know if that means that Jesus is upset and he's seeking to calm down. Here is what I know. When he receives the bad news and it has a personal impact on him, I need to go pray about it. 
and I need to go now. But he is interrupted. His prayer retreat is interrupted by huge crowds who need him. Instead of grieving and instead of praying, he has to serve and heal and teach. That's what his now he is commissioned to do. And so he does. Surrounded by need, he responds with compassion. He felt compassion for the crowds. And at, as his service continues, he does pray, but he prays publicly, blessing the food and asking God to bless what he is doing. But at the end of the day, when all of that need is met, Jesus' need to pray is becoming urgent. You see that because Jesus sends everyone away. Verse 22 of Matthew 14. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Did you notice how many times the author stresses that Jesus insisted on being alone to pray. He makes the disciples go away. He dismisses the crowds. He must be alone. He must go pray. There's a little leeway in the terms of time in this text. Uh, There is evening, which is said a couple of times. And we know that Jesus walks on the water to them at about 3 a.m. But we're talking about a major block of time that Jesus says, I need this time as a time for me to pray. And the text is extraordinarily clear that he was there alone, just talking to God. And after that time of connecting with God, he is ready. He's ready to go on a long walk. He's ready to go on a long walk across the water. He's ready to engage with his disciples again. He's ready to go serve again because he has been alone with the Father. So what I want you to see, and the point I want to make this morning, is that Jesus insists on time alone with his Father. Jesus gets through the day because he insists, I must speak to the Father and I must do it alone. This is far from the only time this happens. This is actually something Jesus does quite frequently and we only have glimpses of it in gospel texts and yet they seem to imply that this happened a lot. Like this is Mark 1:35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. Jesus insisted, rising very early in the morning, Jesus insisted on being alone, a desolate place. In fact, when the disciples wake up that morning, they say, where's Jesus? And they go hunting for him. Guess what? They know where to look. He's probably out on the mountain somewhere praying. Luke 6 and verse 12, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve prayed all night. Presumably, I don't think we know the specifics of it, but presumably because he's about to choose his apostles, there's something to do with that element and the changing dynamic of the ministry that's going to come as more men are added to it in a special way. In Luke 22, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Of course, we know that night he's praying repeatedly the same prayers. But notice he wants the men with him. He says, come and pray with me. But then he departs from them about a stone's throw because even then, even when his men are praying with him, he wants to be alone with the Father. Jesus insists on time alone with the Father. He insists on it. He will wake up early to get it. He will stay up late to get it. He will take long walks to get it. 
he will be in time with God. In fact, Jesus insists on time alone with his father. Time to send everyone else away and just pray to be completely alone. This is what he looks forward to. The time when the crowds go away, the time when the messengers depart and the meal is over and the sun goes down. This is what it looks like for Jesus to put his feet up. This is how Jesus relaxes. He wants to spend time with his father. And I want to say especially, this is what gives him ministry. Ministry, that's not the word. This is what gives him energy for ministry. I look at this, this day, and it's kind of exhausting to me just to read about it. He is doing so much all day long. And when you start breaking down what that would feel like to serve people like that, where does he get the energy? How does he keep going? person after person, keep caring so much, keep having compassion, keep hearing their stories. How does he always have a lesson for the disciples, no matter what they're doing? Even in, well, what are we going to do about the food? Well, what about you want to come walk to me on the water? Great. Now, what do we learn from that, Peter? Over and over and over again, he just always has something. And I know when I'm in ministry and I'm serving people, I get worn out when I only do a couple of them. And yet Jesus just keeps coming and coming. I believe that the source of that power and strength, the energy he has, is that he insists on time alone with his Father. Now, I don't know all the implications of Jesus being God. I don't know all the implications of how Jesus' energy system worked and all that. Let's let's not get into that. I just want to say it this way. If Jesus needs this, I need this. If Jesus needs to be alone with the Father, boy, I sure do. Because whatever Jesus is working with is way bigger and better than what I'm working with. So if Jesus needs it, I know I need it. So bad news, needy people, projects, people and otherwise, those are things we deal with, right? We deal with bad news. We deal with needy people. We have our projects. And what happens with those things is they produce anxiety in us. We worry, we wonder, we stress. Jesus is teaching us something here. I've had an interesting week with this chapter. So I I started this week, and Brent can tell you this. uh, I started this week saying, I want to talk about Matthew 14. I was going to look at these stories. And I started thinking about, okay, well, what we can learn is, well, how does Jesus deal with bad news? You know, how does Jesus deal with people who are in need? That kind of thing. But then my week happened to me. Do you ever have that kind of week? And it was a week where... There was just so much. A week I was feeling overwhelmed. I was feeling anxious, working, talking, serving. And I found that when everything died down, what I really wanted to do at the end of the day is just read a book or go eat some food or just sit around and do nothing. Just kind of blah. But you know what? I didn't feel any better. When I got done with whatever I thought would relieve my anxiety and my tension and make me feel more energetic, I didn't. No amount of food helped. Tried a lot of caffeine, by the way. That didn't help. And then, of course, about midweek, it dawned on me, maybe I need to do what Jesus did. Where I just said, you know what? Let's silence all the things that are calling my name and spend some time with God. And it transformed me this week. Felt calm. 
able to handle problems in myself and my family with other people, energized for things I needed to accomplish, it transformed me. And I know what you're thinking. When I talk about insisting on time alone with God, immediately all of us begin to make excuses because we look at our schedule and the commitments and demands on our time and we say, I can't do it. Young parents, we say, I have screaming children. I have responsibilities with my work. I have already committed to so many things. And so we start listing all the reasons why we don't have time to actually just be alone and pray. Can I just remind you? Jesus had a pretty busy schedule. And if you want to talk about people needing you, I don't know that ever, ever has anybody been needed like Jesus was needed. And yet Jesus said, no, there are times to shut everything down and say, this cannot happen now until I pray. So it may be that we need to insist on that time the way he did. That is... Silence the phones and turn off the radio. Maybe young parents, we have to shut ourselves in the closet or the bathroom or wait till everybody goes to bed and stay up a little late. Maybe we just need to insist. No, this has got to happen. There are other things that I can do that are important and that demand my attention, but this must come first. Maybe I need to get up a little earlier. Maybe I need to stay up a little later. Something needs to change. What Jesus knows, and what I'm really hinting at, is that God is the source of everything good in our lives. He is the source of all the encouragement that we need, and all the strength that we need, and the healing, and the peace, and the compassion, and the kindness that we need. And when we feel drained of those things, and we see people, and we can't have compassion on them, and we see people and all we see is needs and demands, when we look at the the prospect of another week and all we say is, oh, I've got more to do, what we need is God's strength and healing and peace. That's what we need, and Jesus knew it. And so he doesn't look at people as an imposition. He doesn't look at his work as a drag. What he says is, now I can do what God put me here to do. That's what we need. So I don't think it's going to surprise you that I have a challenge for you this week and an encouragement for you to find some time, even if it's only a few minutes, every day in this week to be alone with your father. In fact, I'd love for you to come back and report to me about how that's going. Say, Hey, I tried to do it. I didn't. Hey, I got 30 seconds and here's what it was. Whatever it may be, I think it would be a huge blessing for you. But my call is for us to emulate Jesus. It's not enough to say, wow, Jesus did some really amazing things. If we ignore the fact that Jesus needs the Father just like we do. Maybe there's more to say about what Jesus and the Father's relationship is. But I can definitely say if Jesus needs it, I know I do too. Would you pray with me about it? Father, we thank you so much for this good morning. And we're thankful that we can worship you together. We're thankful for Jesus. That, Father, you did not look at us and say we were too far gone to save. But instead, you reached out and you sent your son to become a man like us. 
to live a life like ours and to offer himself for our sins, to raise him again to new life. And Father, that he lives and reigns even now. We're thankful, Father, that through that sacrifice, we can be right with you. But right now, Father, we're thoughtful about his connection to you and how he insisted on his time with you. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to learn from him as his disciples that we need to pray and that we need to pray alone and to empty our hearts before you and receive the strength that you give. Father, I pray that you will help us this week as your people to be a people of prayer and to gain the strength that you offer us in prayer. That, Father, where there are things amiss in our hearts, that it will be a time that we can be recalibrated, that you'll give us the energy that we need and the compassion that we need, and that you'll help us to think about others rightly, to gain perspective on our lives and our purposes, that we'll learn what you want from us as we pray with you. Father, we thank you so much that you love us enough to continue to teach us and work with us and to have patience. And we pray, Father, that this will be a blessing to us through this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the invitation. The fact that God has sent his son to die for our sins, including yours, and that he welcomes you and calls you to him. That if you're willing to come to him, put your faith in him as the son of God, and be buried with him in baptism, you can be raised to walk in new life. You can have a new hope. You can be a new creature in Christ. We'd love to help you do that. If you're ready to be baptized into Christ, if there's a need that we can help you with, please come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.